The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Not just the history, but how this music continues to evolve, shaping lives, shaking rafters, and ingraining itself into our culture. We're opening the vault on a recent classic records re-release, delving into its inner workings and lasting impact. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener and you're curious to hear more. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound, iTunes, or wherever you tune into podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the Consequence of Sound Podcast, where our album reviews and special programming come to life with our authors and the artists themselves. Here, you'll find our Album of the Week breakdowns, as well as Track by Track, a feature where we explore an album one song at a time with the artist. And also, special artist interviews, like this one. I'm Cap Blackard, Consequence of Sound's Podcast Network Director and Art Director. And in this episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking with David Byrne about the Criterion Collection re-release of his 1986 film True Stories and the first ever edition of that film's complete soundtrack. The film was Byrne's directorial debut, and as it plainly puts it right at the start, is about a bunch of people in Virgil, Texas. It's part zany slice-of-life comedy, part anthropological study, processed through the music of talking heads, and projected through a loving art house lens. It's the most earnest portrait of 80s America ever committed to screen, set against shopping malls, prefab warehouses, freeway cloverleafs, faceless tech buildings, fading small-town kitsch, and endless green acres of possibilities. Today we have a fashion show, and I think it's going to be something that you'll just love. It's very unusual. So come on, let's bring on the show from the Dream Factory, a bonanza of beauty. Disassociated vignettes and testimonials weave together as the town prepares for the celebration of special nests, their local commemoration of Texas's sesquicentennial. At the center of it all is Byrne himself, a cowboy hat-wearing self-parody who wanders into Virgil as a narrator figure. John Goodman debuts as Louis Fine, a marriage-obsessed man. Hello, I'm Louis Fine, and I'm looking for matrimony with a capital M. I believe in the joys and contentment of matrimony. Now, my chances in this world that prints a new diet book every month may not be that good. I'm looking for someone who can accept me for what I am. I'm six foot, three inches tall, and maintain a very consistent panda bear shape. I'm pleased with the way God made me. I wouldn't change a thing. I'm willing to share. Won't you please call this number? 844-WIFE. That's 844-WIFE. Please call. Serious inquiries only. Together, Goodman's Lewis and Burns' inquisitive narrator play off an impeccable cast of characters including Spalding Gray and Annie McEnroe, as a couple who never speak to each other, Swoozie Kurtz, the woman so rich she doesn't have to get out of bed, Tito LaRiva, who hears radio signals in his head, and many more. The film is a pageant of mundane modern wonder celebrating the unassuming suburban grace of a plastic bag in the wind, long before American Beauty, and offering up this penetrative gaze in a rollicking style that could only come from one of the world's greatest art rock outfits. 
David, I saw True Stories when I was in high school, and it was pretty revelatory for me. It changed the way that I wrote. And in retrospect, it really played a part in my development as a multidisciplinary artist. Wow. That's pretty much all I could ask, you know? (laughs) (laughs) If it has that kind of effect, that's pretty good. One of the things I love about it is how it views the world so earnestly. You know, it seems like it's a pretty viable portrait of what you were interested in at that moment in time and your feelings on them, and you managed to figure out a way to stick them all in one place. Yes, it does. It does get to be a little bit of a grab bag. We get to go, oh, yeah, I can, uh, I can say something about architecture here. I can say something about all these different regional musical styles. I can work that in there. And that's one of the reasons that it presents such a clear picture, because it has the opportunity to explore so much. I mean, I show it to people for a lot of reasons, but one of the most significant, I think, is that it's, I feel, one of the most honest and realized portraits of America in the 80s, or a portrait of the 80s itself in some ways. Well, thank you. When it came out, I seem to recall two very different kinds of reactions. In the United States, it was viewed as being very ironic, that I was sort of making fun of people. Oh, gosh. Which was not my intention. In Europe, it was looked at as a kind of loving tribute to a lot of the wonderful creative eccentricities of America, which is what was intended. And I thought, wow, why does that happen? Why do people see it so differently? Is there something, did I fail somewhere? Was I unclear? You know, (laughs) know, I started to blame myself and think, was there something I did that kind of confused people? That something I should have added or whatever? Or was it just my personality or the way I spoke or my presence in the movie that kind of did that? Anyway. Since it came out, a lot of other people have done things similar to that style, like looking at very suburban body types in just sort of a whimsical but also loving way so that now it's an easier dialogue to have. But at the time, maybe it was like too raw, perhaps. Yeah, I want uh, sort of realistic looking people in many cases. Times have changed. I think people who have seen it more recently have a different take on it. Well, I think maybe it laid America bare in a way that hadn't been done before. And it was fun. I mean, it is a, a comedic film in a lot of ways, but it's a time capsule of that moment in time. And yet there's aspects of it that are still shockingly relevant. You know, what with the end of the world coming and all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the um, preacher with all his conspiracy theories and presenting them as a, as a kind of video lecture in church. I mean... All that stuff goes on now, only it's probably on the internet. (laughs) Let's look at what's happened to the national morals since World War II. We lost the Vietnam War. The movies and the television are filled with characters I don't even want to know. Not in this life. The farmer's in trouble. The small businessman is in trouble. Unemployment is skyrocketing. Texas is still paying for John Kennedy's death, my friends. There's a a quote in your introduction to the True Stories book that is chillingly and increasingly relevant. You wrote, Empires in retreat get into some pretty weird stuff. Egypt, Rome, England, Japan, Spain, and now the United States. They get this intense pride and nostalgia for what they imagine they are and what they imagine they were because they can see it slipping away. Boy, I'm surprised. Wow, that seems very relevant now. (laughs) (laughs) Ahead of your time, man. (laughs) 
Oh, well, maybe just kind of looking whatever was happening right in the eye. Initially, I know this movie was obviously based on a lot of clippings from magazines and so on, but you pulled in Beth Henley and Stephen Tobolowsky to write the script. And in the book, you mentioned that the first draft had too much story in it. I was curious what that version of the film looked like and how it transmuted to get to its present state. To be honest, I can't even remember what all the extra elements were that were in that version. Some of them survived. Some of them obviously survived. And working with those guys was really exciting. And we did a lot of scouting around and driving around Texas and getting inspiration and talking about what we were seeing. They went to school in Texas, so it was nice to talk to them about that. Mm. Well, do you recall what you um, gave them to work off of? Did you just straight up give them the clippings and were like, here's the story, kind of, and here's some pictures, and let's make this a thing? Yeah, I think there was a lot of pictures and drawings that I had on the wall of my house at the time. And I think there might have been the inspirational clippings from the tabloid press about these eccentric characters. I might have just said, okay, here's a lot of visuals, and here's these characters. Like, yeah, this person never leaves their house and rarely gets out of bed. And here's somebody who's advertising for a wife. And here's a guy who's got all these gear in his trailer and he's listening for UFOs. And I said, is there a way we can kind of thread through all these people and get to know them in some way? And yeah, they contributed a lot. Jonathan Demme came by and he had an idea. So yeah, lots of people helped nudge me in one direction or another. What was uh, Jonathan Demme's nudge? He pointed out the value of having something he referred to as a clock which he didn't mean mm. um, a timepiece on the wall. He meant that you know something's coming. Yeah. And that as the film moves on, you know you're going to get closer to it. So you know you're headed someplace. You're bouncing around visiting all these different characters, but you have a sense that you're headed somewhere. So I think that helped cement the idea of the talent show at the end and the parade and all that kind of stuff, that that was all leading up to that. And all you had to do was have people mention it every once in a while. And it gave you a sense of, oh, something's going to happen at the end here. <laughs> and this is all leading somewhere. This is not just totally aimless. And that was, that was a wonderful idea. Yeah, no, that's straight up good story advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. When it came to actually assembling that event, the celebration of specialness, there is such a varied array of performances there, only a couple of which are mentioned specifically in the script. What was the process for assembling all those different people for the parade and for the stage show itself? Some of it was not exactly improvised, but some of it was based on actual acts that we could get in Texas that existed there. So we weren't going to like create all this stuff. We'd create some things, but then other things we would just use what already existed. So like the parade was an existing parade. We just inserted our stuff into it <laughs> and said, well, we know you're having 4th of July parade or whatever it was. And we have a whole group of moms with their infants and baby carriages that we'd like to, they would like to be part of this. And we have a, an accord, a marching accordion band. They would like to be part of it. Never in the, the town. They said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, Occasionally complained if we just said that we need to kind of back up and do that section again so we get another angle <laughs> on it. And they go, well, wait a minute. This, the parade's got to go on. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> one in two women wear the wrong foundation. Which one are you? Get on the better looking side of those odds with Il Maquillage. Using AI, Il Maquillage virtually shade matches you to the perfect foundation. 
Their foundation has over 50,000 five-star reviews thanks to its luxe lightweight formula. And with 50 shades, there's a flawless finish for everyone. Take the Power Match quiz to find yours at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. It worked. With the presence of the music being so intense in the movie, I'm curious how the rest of Talking Heads viewed the project as it was developing, and if they were always going to be a component of it or not. In order for the characters to sing over the Talking Heads tracks, we had to record the tracks for the songs mm-hmm. before the movie was shot. And the band liked the songs, we had fun doing them, but at the same time, they viewed it as David's project. Mm-hmm. This is one of, one of David's projects, and then we'll do something else when he's done with this. They're in it in a couple of scenes where the band is featured in kind of a scene that's on television and there's a scene where there's like a a lip sync contest and things like that yeah the film and the story and just the sort of focal points of true stories there's a lot of rituals explored mostly modern rituals that people don't normally observe as being rituals like shopping or going to clubs or parades and then of course there's the papa legba sequence i'm curious about your perception of ritual space and the first time's you were ever exposed to, say, Afro-Caribbean religion, like in the Papa Legba sequence? That was something I, I became very interested in. I'd go to church services in New Orleans or other places, and it, it was intense. It was wonderful. And it, the ecstasy was like something you would see at one of the best kind of R&B or rock performances that you'd ever seen. And I realized that a lot of sacred rituals, whether it's Afro-Cuban or Afro-Brazilian, they partake of a lot of that same ecstasy and that same kind of sense of being taken by the music. And that, to me, it was a kind of spirituality that didn't place man in opposition to nature, but looked for a way for man to somehow work in consort or in harmony with natural forces, to imagine and experience our place in the world rather than viewing ourselves as being separate from the world in a way that can be very pleasurable. Mm. I have great fascination for the whole evolutionary tree of all that kind of religion and spirituality. So there's a little bit of it in the movie. Not much, but a little bit. After I did True Stories, not too long after, I did a documentary in Brazil about an Afro-Brazilian religion called Candomblé. And so I was pretty immersed in it at that point. Getting a Criterion release for True Stories is pretty exciting. I mean, for years, I've had the DVD, which is the most bare-bones DVD I own of anything. (laughs) I know. Yes, that tells you something. I don't know. But anyway, yes, it's incredibly exciting. Huge fan of what they do. But it wasn't easy. It took probably a couple of years to get clearances from Warner the film company, the mm-hmm. record company, all that kind of stuff, to get everybody kind of shaking hands and coming to an agreement. It was, wow, complicated. I, yeah, I bet. And the fact of having the complete soundtrack release, that's so exciting. I mean, I sought out the Sounds from True Stories record. <laughs> Which only came out on vinyl and cassette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think there was like a little blurb in the CD for the album that said like, oh yeah, there's a soundtrack and there's going to be a cast recording version too, which of course never materialized. And then I hunted down all the singles that had the different releases on it, what there was. It's so awesome to have everything out finally. So I imagine that was quite the process. Yeah, that meant tracking down tapes and doing nice new mixes of the cast versions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So these have been completely rebuilt from the ground up? Yes, a lot of them. That's so rad. (laughs) Just having a decent release of True Stories was kind of like on my media wish list of like possible futures and all that. But having something that's like got, you know, new documentaries on it is just overwhelming. As soon as I found out, it was the middle of the night and I was like, I'm ordering this immediately. (laughs) Documentaries they did are really good. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of them are quite eccentric, but some of them are really very moving. In regards to the music featured in the film that is not Talking Heads music, like Cocktail Desperado, where did all that other music come from? Were you just pouring through, like, tonally things that you found that felt like the right fit, or was it an active search? It was an active search, but there's a world of music in Texas Mm. of all different kinds, and I thought, let's try and represent that. Let's have a Tex-Mex song, and Christina Petoskey said, oh, you got to check out Esteban Hordan, the psychedelic, you know, Cajunto guy. And (laughs) it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And Terry Allen is the husband of Joe Harvey Allen, one of the actors. And I'd seen Carl Finch, who has this band outside of Dallas in Denton called Brave Combo. And they do like a radical take on polkas and other music, too. And (laughs) I approached them and said, can you write a thing for an accordion marching band? (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it's right up his alley. So I, it was a lot of this stuff was commissioned where I'd go to people and go, can you do this? This is kind of your thing, but with a little bit of a twist to it. I love that. I, I did not realize how much of it was custom. That's very cool. And yeah, the accordion marching, that's a really like, I mean, they're producing some downright angelic sounds out of those accordions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a number of deleted scenes, which I'm really excited to experience that I've only seen in the script. I've seen like stills from them, but it seems like they all got cut for good reason, the flow and the pacing of the movie. Yeah, a lot of it was just flow and pacing. There was a version where we followed John Goodman's wedding immediately with a funeral. Mm. And I mean, I thought it's a comedy, but (laughs) people found it kind of depressing. (laughs) So we said, okay, I guess it's got to go. Let's kind of see if we can take it out and still have the scene with uh, Pop Staples. And so then taking out the funeral scene warranted slicing up the other scenes, building up to the cute woman dying? Yeah, some of her build up and some of her character got cut because it was not going to end with her funeral anymore. Was she, like her death via cuteness overload, (laughs) was that a uh, tabloid? Who knows, who knows, or heart attack, heat stroke, who knows what it was. Uh, (laughs) She seemed to have a history of being overwhelmed. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think that Lewis and the lazy woman are up to in 2018? If we're considering these characters as (laughs) focal points for aspects of America, who are they now? Wow. She seemed independently wealthy because she could afford to stay home. But Lewis, I mean, he may have done okay. He may have done okay. He may have done all right before the crash of 2008. (laughs) And those very core stocks just... Bottom yeah, yeah, down. yeah. <laughs> got a pair of stock and funded a startup 
Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) The film has an ending title card, which reads, if you can think of it, it exists somewhere. And I was curious where that came from, ending the film with that buried little message there, if you recall what that was all about. Now, of course, I can't remember. It sounds like something I may may have written down somewhere on a post-it note or whatever. And that... Tibor Coleman, who was doing the end credits and the titles and all this stuff, saw it and said, hey, can we put this in here? Can we use this? <laughs> and it sounds like one of those things. Hmm. It's not too dissimilar from the Internet rule, Rule 34. Are you familiar with that? No. What's, the, what's that? That's uh, If you can think of it, there's porn of it. <laughs> I wonder if that's actually true. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to verify that. <laughs> There's an artist here, uh, Vic Muniz, who once said, my ambition is to make a claymation porn feature. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you go ahead, you go ahead. That's probably one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard. <laughs> That's a perfect medium for it. It's claymation so visceral. <laughs> yes, yep. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) If you enjoyed this interview or any of our features here on COS, please consider rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts or rating and reviewing specific episodes, like this one, on Podchaser. Your feedback helps us grow and lets us know what you love about our programming. You can also reach out to us on the Consequence Podcast Network Facebook page. We're an independent music outlet, and it's you fine folks that make it possible for us to keep exploring music in new and exciting ways. So connecting with you and how you experience our content is majorly important to us. If you want to interface with me directly, you can find me at Cap Blackard on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you enjoy this interview, you might also want to check out our other interview with David Byrne over on our show, This Must Be the Gig. It's a series named after one of my favorite Talking Heads songs, This Must Be the Place, and sees host Lior Phillips speaking with artists and creators about live music, the perils of performing, defining moments, and even the technical side of how it's made. You can hear us speak with David and choreographer Annie B. Parson about their recent tour. Just find This Must Be the Gig on your favorite podcast player. Be sure to also check out our recently debuted series, The Opus, which deconstructs legendary albums under a new light. This month, we're taking on Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, and next up is Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. And that's just the beginning. There's many more podcasts to explore at consequenceofsound.net and via the Consequence Podcast Network on all your favorite podcast players. Consequence Podcast Network. One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Which one are you? Get on the better looking side of those odds with Il Maquillage. Using AI, Il Maquillage virtually shade matches you to the perfect foundation. Their foundation has over 50,000 five-star reviews thanks to its luxe lightweight formula. And with 50 shades, there's a flawless finish for everyone. Take the Power Match quiz to find yours at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.